So I, I thought I can't just keep drinking the same standards every week. <laughs> so we bought this oh, a couple no. of weeks ago and I've been saving it for the podcast. So it's a Cava so from Spain and because I, I love Cava. I prefer it much more than Prosecco. I, I find it more, more bitter and this one is quite bitter. It's called – hang on, I took a photo of it because I didn't want to take leave it out of the fridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's delicious. I've been dying to to taste it. Where are my food is? Is it cava like because there's certain grapes that are called cava, like white, or is it just because it's Spanish? I, I think it's just because, you know, like you can't call anything champagne unless it's made in the champagne region. Mm-hmm. And so Prosecco is the Italian version and cava is the Spanish version. I'm assuming, I don't know, it, this is a brute mm-hmm. uh, and it's organic. Ooh. And it's method traditional, which is that's what you want because they're, they're not putting extra sugar, extra bubble, you know, um, manufacturing yeah. the bubbles in it. And so it's called Castells. Ooh, yum. And it's, yeah, so it's delicious. It's it's quite dry, really dry actually and quite bitter. And it reminded me, as soon as I drank it, I, I remembered it took me straight back to this Carver bar we went to in Barcelona and we kept – trying to get into it and we kept walking past it and missing it and then one night we finally walked past and we were like what's all these people spilling out onto the street and we're like oh my god that's the carver bar and we got like it was packed like today it'd be a physical distancing nightmare (laughs) it was like this squashed like sardines and we went in and we got two glasses of carver and and we got the there were like five different types to get and the poshest, most expensive one was three euros. Oh so God. we splashed out and we got that <laughs> and got, oh, my God, it was gold. It was like stepping into the, the sort of 60s because you got these little plates with cubes of cheese <laughs> with toothpicks in them. It was oh, amazing. Fantastic. It was amazing and it yeah, was such pictures. delicious carver. And this tastes like that because I think this is the more expensive version. So it's like the driest and most bitter. Mm. I'm drinking. Yep. Uh, it's called Yarra Burn. Yep. 2016. It's a brute. It's a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir grapes. Mm. So a darker color? Um, no. Oh. Because recently learned this from watching the movie Sideways. The color of wine comes from the skin. Ah, yes. And so if it doesn't have skin contact, then it won't be too dark. And this one is beautifully light and it's very the creamy skin, the skin of a person no the skin the of the grape, grape. yeah so well, if yeah. The, the reason they're red is the reason red wine is red is because the skin of the grape stays in there way longer oh right and and white wine is no skin contact they must like, yeah right yes apparently well i recently watched the movie sideways have you ever seen it no but i've always wanted to because it's, it's sense, wine sense, movie yeah sense, yeah it's so good well it's I remember seeing when I was a teenager and like thinking, oh my God, this is the most sophisticated thing I've ever seen because I was like 14 and I'd like seen Margaret and David review it and I was like, I'm going to go see the movies. <laughs> and then watching it the other day, I was like, this is just like a bumbling comedy about two guys the week before one of them gets married. Like it's not sophisticated at all. And it's They're so just drinking wine. middle class exactly. white guys. Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. One of them like was writing a novel kind of, of thing. Um, but anyway, so this is actually, it's one of my, it's, I reckon it's the most valued player at the moment. Ooh. 
Um, Taste-wise, it's it... so smooth and creamy. Like the, Ooh, the foamy creaminess is so the good. Chardonnay grape, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And the um, I don't know. It, it, it's it's very light and it's not like the flavors kind of. It sits in the back. It's very subtle. It's not. It doesn't like punch you, which I really like too. It's just like it's not too sugary. Yeah. It's just a nice kind of light creaminess. And yeah, it's just perfect, especially with a Red Rock Deli chip. Chippy. Yeah, I haven't got a Red Rock Deli chippy, mm. but I had some of those. You know those snow pea, um, those pea snacks. They're like like edamame. Like peas? No, no, not edamame. They're like freeze dried peas, and they're fantastic. Oh. I love them, and Dougie loves them. That's why he was grizzling. He wanted more of them. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched. Um, a monster, monster calls, calls. <laughs> directed by Sally Cookson, who is my new obsession in terms of directors. She directed Jane Eyre, which I loved uh, at the National Theatre and watched it online. That was at the very beginning of ISO, hmm. so I think I was. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I didn't love a monster calls as much, and I wonder if it's also to do with. You know, the different emotional states you're in. Like at the beginning of ISO, everyone was so much more anxious and fearful about what was going on and, oh, yeah, I don't know. And just, like, scared of what's going to happen in terms of the industry as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so it was so so great to see great work and to to keep it alive. But a monster cause, I mean, I loved, there were elements of it that I really loved. Uh, Do you want to, you're so good at... Giving the blurb. Do you want to? <laughs> okay, I'll give the blurb. Do you want to provide the blurb? Um, so, it's actually based off a, a fairy tale, I think, and it's oh. been adapted a couple of times. I think it's been adapted into a film, and and this is the adaptation into a play. Um, and it's basically about a kid who's living with his mother, and at the very beginning of the play, we find out that his mother has terminal cancer, mm-hmm. and so, and then we see him go to school. And he's getting bullied at school because all the kids at school know that his mum has cancer and that's like something different and therefore they're bullying him about it, which is horrible. And then he kind of he goes home and he gets visited in the middle of the night at a specific time, I think it's 1207. 12.07. Um, by a tree monster. Who, so out so out, out the front of his house, he's lived in this house his whole life, and out the front of the house is a yew tree. And um, he and this one night this yew tree comes to life or like it kind of summons a, a I was gonna say demon but like not a, like like well, kind of like sinister man, really. sinister kind of immortal hmm. and um he and the and the, this man explains that he's gets called to certain people across history when they need uh to figure out their stories and then he says to this kid we're gonna give you I'm gonna tell you three stories and then on the and then on the fourth time I see you, you're gonna tell your story. And so like the structure's kind of set up from there, so we know that that's gonna happen. Yeah. And then throughout the play, the mother gets progressively worse. The father comes as like some family drama interspersed with these morally ambiguous stories, where even though we are used to a villain and a not a goodie, <laughs> a goodie and a baddie. Um, they in in these stories, the goodie sometimes is the baddie, or sometimes the baddie becomes the goodie, or sometimes everyone's both. And I guess it it's a conversation about knowing your truth and about how you can hold contradicting truths within you. Oh. I thought that the um, 
production elements were fantastic. Yeah. I thought that like on the stage there was um, this little postage stamp kind of uh, platform at the back and there was a band within that little space. Yeah. And, the, and that, the reveal of that was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. And the, I found the sound design amazing. Like yeah. I really liked it. Like it was live music but also it reminded me a lot of like Tom York's kind of solo yes. stuff. Yeah, Mick um, was here at the beginning when I first started watching it and he like immediately flicked his head around. He was like, is that Radiohead? <laughs> it began with this real Yeah, like the rhythm yeah. and the kind of electronic r- rhythm of it and also yeah. the use of voice, like lame mm. voice. And I thought that the sound design was fantastic. I really loved all of the ensemble solves around oh, like yeah. how the props were introduced. So on the stage there were, I reckon probably about mm, 12 to 14 people. Yeah. Um, and they all played different characters, but but when they weren't playing characters, they sat opposite each other in the line, like at the perimeter of the stage, and were the, acted as advice to set the scene in terms of, like, if it needed a prop, they'd just, like, hold up a spoon. Or yeah, I loved thing. that. I absolutely loved yeah, that. I really loved that. And I thought I thought, I, I thought all the ensemble stuff and all of, all of the movement and commitment and consistency around all of that was yeah. so such a pleasure to watch, and and it made you like you could see after seeing Jane Eyre, you see her style. Oh my I mean, god, yeah, was, absolutely, it was yeah. fantastic. And yeah, you, you really did. And even at the beginning with the um the clothing, the baby, the baby yeah. turned like the baby was just a wrapped up rag, and then it kind of turned into a piece of clothing, and then someone put the clothing on, which yeah. is such a fantastic, like it's a beautiful visual storytelling device, but it also enables us to understand that this is. Uh, a little bit abstract, like it's yeah. not realism. Um, We're going into a world where we have to absolutely have to suspend our disbelief and we have to imagine. Yeah, and we have to like but, we have to piece things together and find the story yeah. within this. And no, not that it was hard to follow the story, but no, I, once it's set up as she did in Jane Eyre, like um, you know the world that you're in and you know the kind of work you have to do. Yeah, yeah. and I and I as an audience member really like doing that work. Like I think that yes. if this play was kind of a more trying to use realism, you know. I, I think that I would be like, this is a boring thing. And it, it wouldn't have. It would have almost. I feel like it would have almost become a pantomime. Mm. Mm. You know, with the monster. I did find it very melodramatic, and I think that yeah. might have been in the performance, or it might have been because it's like a kind of fairy tale setup. But or it might have just been the main kid who seemed yeah. very like. It's very yeah, the whole time. And I've noticed that with all of the work I've watched online during isolation, and I've really only watched like all of the National Theatre work I've watched, and I know it's a big theatre, but everyone's shouting mm. all the time. Mm. And it, it does feel very theatrical, overly theatrical. And um, also like the, I think it's a bad instinct to go with where – because if something's scary, then it has to be yelling at you yeah. immediately. Like I think actually there was because the the demon man that we meet. Yeah. I feel like a better way to go with that because I wasn't scared of him and I, I found him a bit, a bit ridiculous immediately. Yeah. I think and a better well, way to go. I found him like he nothing changed in his performance. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think that if he started out like just a bit off. And a bit like, yeah. oh my god, like, can I trust this person? He's, he seems trustworthy, but oh, hang on, no, he's because so, I think that the unpredictability of a person and the kind of sly, sinister, quiet, kind of subdued, yeah. contained is is I think 
much more affecting and scary than someone like going woo and like kind of yelling all the time. And I wanted to. I wanted that development of the character. Yeah. But he, you know, like if he had come in at the beginning, either like either way, if he'd come in super strong and scary at the beginning, but then started to tone it down as things became more truthful, then beautiful choice. Or if he had come in, you know, at the beginning, karma uh, to try and, you know, gain the boy's trust, but then became progressively more scary as things got scarier in the boy's life, then beautiful choice as well. But he was at like a 10 Mm. from the beginning to the Mm. end. Uh, And, I mean, there was some beautiful physical work, but I I also found like with him in the – because they – I love the way they created this tree, you know, that all these ropes came mm. down. But I also wanted that to be a reveal. They were there and then they kind of just brought them frontally yeah. down. I wanted them just to, to drop mm. and to, to shock us in that moment. And then, you know, the way they kind of swirl around with these ropes to create the the trunk of the tree, which reminded me of the banyan trees in in Darwin with the, all the kind of strips coming off the trunks. It was mm, beautiful. really sinewy, but yeah. Then he'd just kind of clunkily hang in them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I just felt like there was no there was no nuance to his performance. No, but apparently, so I was because I was telling my friend about this, about the play, mm. and he had seen the movie and he immediately started doing this like parrot, like this kind of impression of the the this this demon character right. and it was like exactly the same and I was like oh okay so they've I wonder if they've watched the movie and just been absolutely imp- like just same taking, choices yeah and yeah. I and I think that like it's cool to have a, a tree nymph that comes to life and tries to tell you so it's like that's a cool idea but and like the lines were kind of clunky and I feel like the lines could have been better as well but yeah I I think you could have I think that it just didn't work for the stage to to try to be that larger than life kind of character because he's a man. And I think it's, yeah. it's it's better to have a man and then believe that maybe behind this veneer is this magical power yeah. instead of like trying to like pretend yeah. ineffectively that you have magical powers. Yes. It was a lot of pretending. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't so moved by it. You know, no. the ending was, I feel like it, it was quite sad, but I didn't cry. Mm. And that's quite unusual for me because I tend to get very sucked in and mm. cry at the drop of a hat. But I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't, I wasn't invested from the start. I, I was, it felt too theatrical from the start. Not theatrical, that's probably not the right word because it's theatre, but it was it was acted. There was so much pretending and so much yeah. acting. There was, for a, for a play that's about, finding your truth <laughs> mm. there was not as much truth as in the performances as needed to be I also think that like that was said so much I feel like the intention was to inspire you to walk away with like oh you know I'm really going to think about yeah. what I'm avoiding in my life or within my relationships or whatever it is but it it just un, it kind of absolutely undermined that and, and didn't give you any tools and it didn't inspire no. that like the construction of it was great, but the kind of yeah. spirit of it was quite yeah. lackluster. Because we also didn't see, I, f- I felt like the boy, we didn't see his, we didn't see him discover the truth. We didn't see his development with each new story that the monster brought. It, it was, he'd kind of, 
he'd resist it and he felt quite disconnected from it as well. He'd be like, Meh. and and that all there was there are a few lines that really undermined it as well that kind of they, they made a joke out of it and they took the stakes away. Mm. And so then when he'd go back into the real world, the bullies were still bullying him. And he didn't stick up for himself. Yeah, he didn't. And, his yeah, he didn't learn from those stories yeah. and then transform in any way. No. Yeah. No. And there were no consequences because even when he did fuck up, if no one was like, "You fucked up," they were like, "Oh well, your mum's dying of cancer," which is yeah. fair enough. But also, like, why are we watching the story? Yeah, like, we're learn not seeing from this person it. I need transform. to see the development of yeah. the character. How the character <laughs> changed. Yeah. Yeah, but so in saying that, there were some beautiful theatrical moments in it though the physical mm. the physical her ensemble movement yeah. is fantastic although in this one I felt like it was less integrated than Jane Eyre I felt like Jane Eyre flowed so mm. beautifully all mm. over the stage and I feel like the structure assisted with that whereas this even though we had that the band at the back so it was a it was a it was a, just a white box basically that they performed in and the back wall of the white box kind of this this blind or this part wall just came up to reveal this the band kind of in the box but it didn't give it dimension it actually there was no real dimension Mm. on the stage Mm. so we didn't get those yeah we didn't get the levels or the dimension it felt a bit flat yeah and I felt like the there were there were so many moments. It reminded me a bit of Frantic Assembly's "Things I Know to Be True," which was two different directors working in their styles, but trying to put the two together. So one oh, incredibly God. physical work, which was Frantic Assembly's uh, artistic director, and then the previous AD of State Theatre Company of South Australia, Geordie Brookman, who does a lot of realism work and they kind of tried to mash the two together and so you'd get these like super hyper real scenes and then suddenly there'd be some movement and Mm. it wasn't interwoven it was just this and then this and then this and I felt like this play did that as well it just it was like okay this is an ensemble bit and then now we go into the real world Mm. and then this is an ensemble bit and the beauty of Jane Eyre was that those those worlds just flowed and they were interwoven throughout. Mm. I, I agree with you that it was flat. I feel like they were all way too upstage. Like yeah. there was nothing downstage really. Yeah, and I, yeah, the proscenium arch, I, it must be something about that theatre, the uh, Bristol Old Vic. It's very far back. Mm. It's, it seems they like. They spend so much time like near that back wall. Whereas yeah. like, come down to the stage, like, yeah. let us see you. And also, like, that's where you can be vulnerable. And I think the moments, the the strongest moments for me were the moments between the dad and the son, and they were so me few. Too. There were only a couple of them, but they were downstage. Yeah. And the the language, the dialogue was minimal, mm-hmm. and they just had to breathe and they had to to uh, deal with the tension that and the subtext that sat there. That mm-hmm. those moments were felt so truthful. Yeah. And so so clear about what they were trying to do clear about their intention and just they just they just happened they weren't manufactured yeah I felt like the rest was they were present yeah. yeah I that dad character that dad actor is he's Australian he's Australian yeah he, Who is he I've seen him in um MTC stuff and I really feel like he was the standout actor in, in yeah. that whole ensemble even in, in all the ensemble work his presence is so strong yeah and he doesn't 
he doesn't push. He doesn't. He's he's not forcing anything. He's just there. Yeah, and, and he's doing the job of it as well. Like he's yeah within the ensemble, he totally blended in and mm. was just. But but you could see him committing to it. Like whatever yeah. he had to do, he was committing to it. But it's, I was glad that he was given the role of the father because I'd noticed him like pre before we yeah. were introduced to him as a father and thought he was wonderful. Yeah, whereas I felt – I mean, I, I love what Sally Cookson does with the character transformation. I love I love all the devices she uses. They're so up my alley. But I felt like some of the actors in this one felt like they had to act a, act a different character every time rather than let the physicality mm. demonstrate it and let the intention come through. Mm. They, they, and that's where it became melodramatic and mm. really the, the truth was lacking, whereas if you just work with the physicality and you work with the intention, then it will come through. Mm, I agree. I, I do wonder because I found the the guy that played the bully, like the main bully, really shit. I really didn't like yeah. him believe him at all. He was so forced. Um, but then he's like a beautiful aerial artist. Like there was a couple of aerial moments. Yeah. And I was like, oh, mate, like, I wonder if these are kind of circus performers who are training as actors or if there's yeah. some sort of crossover there and hence why I wasn't convinced. But, I, like, in the same vein as my criticism about the demon man, like, I, I thought that the bullying stuff was so unnuanced and, like, like a caricature of, caricature mm. of what a, a bully mm. would be. And it's like, hang on a second, you've been to high school, like, just think about, like, the kind yeah. of way that bullies act. They don't act like that. Like you're being like Nelson Monks from The Simpsons right now. Yeah, like, you're literally a cartoon character. Yeah, like what are you doing? Like pair it back and think about like why you're specifically bullying. Like yeah. all of that stuff I think was absolutely forgotten about. And I wonder I think if – a lot of – sorry. Oh, I just, I just wonder if like I think that's the danger or like the, the things that get missed when, when you are devising – because yeah. then the actors are thinking more about like the it's like oh these are archetypal characters I'll just do it this this first way that, that I came across instead of being like yeah. oh hang on a second just because you came across it at first doesn't mean that that first impulse is the good impulse to have like and I think the danger with imp- improvising with devising sorry is that you miss you can miss objectives you still need to have an objective when you've devised a character yeah, you don't you know and I I think that's often a step that's so clearly part of text work is, you know, you do step by step, you know, the, you break mm, it down and yeah. then you look at the objectives and uh, the, and your strategies and your tactics within that. And I think quite often, and this is why devising can come across as weak and I think a lot of people are worried about it and scared of it uh, because because people don't take that, extra step of including the objectives within mm. the devised work mm. and if you if you've still once you've created the work you've got to treat it like a normal theatrical work where exactly. you've got to work out what are you trying to achieve how are you trying to affect the other person and this you, i felt like the actors weren't trying to affect anyone else they mm. were just trying to play something yeah and that's where the bully well, he, well, of course he wasn't going to affect the kid with his bullying behaviour because he was only worried about showing the bullying yeah. behaviour. Yeah, he, he wasn't actually didn't... trying to hurt this kid, which is yeah, the Yeah, and then you don't character. have the dimension. And then the as an audience you're like, well, I don't care about this because, mm. well, because the bully is performing to no one and then the yeah. kid is pretending to be hurt 
but we all know he's not. I also felt that the script needed work. Like I, no. I felt like a lot of the lines were kind of cliche. It almost felt like they had this text and they probably just took some stuff from it, no. but they, they kind of rushed those polished moments around no. like, let's make sure that this doesn't sound like just, you know, a cliche hurried line. Yeah. And, and same with objectives and intentions. Like, yeah. well, hang on a second, like, we've that's... got this character, but let's actually, embo- like, you can embody it, but let's make sure that it's hitting the person that you're yeah. performing to. And that, I think that's why it's still so important to have a writer in the room when you're devising. I, I think people just are unsure because devising is so, there's no, there's no one way to do it. And, you know, devising, I guess, at the heart of it is like, well, we're just devising it. So uh, people are unsure about how, uh, how their roles work. And mm. I think especially writers, they're not, writers are not trained in a devising process mm. and trained in those devising, you know, even like so many writers are quite afraid of creative developments because what do you do? How do, how do I deal with actors yeah. <laughs> in the room? And I, I don't want to give them words and take their words you know there's it's a whole like ip sort of thing Mm. but i think you know that's why that that's why i think the anchors work you know without blowing our own horn but i think that's that's one thing that we really focus on because we we've set up our system we know how it works and yes we come from a devising with a lot of our work we come from a devising base but but you have to having you there means that we don't have those rushed moments and mm. you pay attention to what's being said while I'm focusing on the physical intention. Because mm. I, I also think that what happens in a devising room without a writer is like, oh, yeah, that's great. Okay, yep, we'll, we'll keep that, we'll say that. Yeah. But it means that, you know, I am, I can imagine that certain lines and certain things, certain moments almost become the property of that actor and therefore they that line goes in because they say that and yeah. and maybe, you know, it's harder to be like, well, actually, no, that doesn't work. Like, let's think of another way to do that because yeah. it's almost personally offensive to say yeah. that. Yeah. Whereas I think that if there is a writer in the room while the devising is happening, there's just someone curating what's being said and being yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that works. I might just, like, rephrase it or, like, no, that's, like, can't, that can't be yeah. said or whatever yeah. it is. And it just means that there's, that there is authorial intent yeah. behind all of these offers because the offers are often like gold yeah but yeah you do need some consistency yeah yeah but sometimes actors don't have the the necessarily the vocabulary or the or the you know just the wherewithal at the time when they're working on the floor to find those beautiful words mm. I think that's why the work we created fading was I think fading was a really good example of how that process works so well. You know, you we, we created the work on the floor with through provocations with the actors and you took literally all the words that they said but then you reworked them to make it have intention, to make it make, so it made sense, so it wasn't cringy, mm. so it flowed. And then once we put, put it back in their mouths, that – the, the relationship was such that they could say, oh, that feels weird. I, I feel like I wouldn't really say that or some of my age wouldn't say that and then we'd rework yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. I think it's about establishing that that's That give and take as well. Like it's it's not a finished product when I give you the script and it's not a finished product when you give me an offer. Yeah. And, that, and, and it's actually about like whittling it down into something that's useful yeah. and and intentional. And I think yeah. that's, that's what frightens people with theatre because 
for you know for so long it's been the playwright has written this and we say the words exactly hmm. the playwright's not in the room so we don't we can't talk to them about changing anything <laughs> but also we wouldn't change their their words they are gold but also uh, like even with people like Arthur Miller who you know apparently <laughs> wrote exactly death of a salesman I when I was saying that but he, okay he wrote death of a salesman in 6 weeks allegedly mm. he had a theater and a bunch of actors and i think a director while he was writing that like if they oh they, they so he he came he had this idea for a script but it, it was working the writing process just like sit in a room yeah. like it's actually a really rare real it's and i think the mythology around it is so like even shakespeare was like acting and writing it was like no i i just i don't think that many playwrights and maybe novelists different story but playwrights you know they're in the room they're they're seeing how these these words sound maybe it's a more contemporary thing that we, where we've started to really separate the yeah playwright i think so i think the, it's a power structure thing too and a funding yeah. thing it's probably you know you could probably do a phd on it if you care that I much feel like, i feel like we could we could do yeah. we should do some research into <laughs> how playwrights did work and how much you know it was a collaborative process because mm. theater is fucking collaborative it's yeah. bizarre when mm. People are so worried about. Oh no, I don't want to. I don't want to work on the floor with an actor. <laughs> yeah, I find I find that, like all like for example, this thing that I've written for the Seniors Festival that you're yeah. directing. It's just a one woman show, I guess. Yeah, we would call, it, but it's like a radio play. But I haven't heard it. I, I've I've read it aloud a few times, but I, I need now to hear an actor, and I need to talk to the actor, and I need to understand what the actor is responding to and whether or not there's a different way of phrasing things or whether or not once they embody the character or they understand the character a bit more, what they, their insights are. Like yeah. I, I think that, you know, other, I, I just think that it, it makes the work so much more rich. And I, and I do have authorial intent. Like I, I, I have ideas that I want to be delivered through this text, mm. but at the same time, I also want the audience to really respond to it. Mm-hmm. And the only way that's going to happen is through a collaborative process where a bunch of different people give me their notes and, and I, I think, I think it's about there's a, there's an ego thing but there's a fear thing as well. And that, I suppose the two are connected because if, you know, what if you get a bad note and then you just feel like the worst writer in the whole world because mm. you're so alone as a writer, you know, even though if you work in the room, yes, you're working with other people, but then you go away on your own and you write and then we comment on it. Mm. And that can be incredibly, I would imagine, incredibly, per- it can be very personal mm. because you've done it all on your own. You can't yeah. go, oh, I co- well, you can co- co-write things. but I think also though, it's a real privilege to have someone read your work and then give you notes. Yeah. Like they've given you their time mm-hmm. and if they're, you know, unless they've like just skimmed it and ha- like obviously don't understand what they've read, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's someone who's, you know, often hasn't been paid to just read what you've written and they're telling you what they think and you literally have the power to take or leave it. Like it's your work. Mm. No one's going to murder you if you don't. But Absolutely. listen to what they say because often it, it, we even do this with previews. Like we – 
ask people oh what God. did you think tell us that, like we will make change and it's fucking hard because it hurts because you've worked so hard to get to that point yeah it's so much more yeah to yeah to oh gosh. listen to notes how many things did we change after our three graces preview last year exactly <laughs> yeah like the whole beginning change all of the props were out like but i really think that we dumped the dance number <laughs> yeah we dropped it and <laughs> um, but i think that like those are the lessons that you you learn like you you gotta and especially when you're starting out and like I feel like we've learned so much in the past few years because we've followed these processes but you know people know what they're talking about a lot of the time and if you pick yeah. the right person to give you notes they'll always make your work better yeah it's as yeah you've just got to discuss with people who care about the work mm. and not care about their own ideas being employed or their taste being employed and that's the same with the makers. Like mm. we've got to care about the intention of the work. What are we trying to say? Is it coming across? No. Okay. So let's have a look at how we we mm. can make it come across more clearly and we can take those suggestions from people. Mm. Yeah. Like I think with the three graces, something that we didn't quite um, get until that preview was we have to be a bit more seductive at first. Like I think that, that we kind of hit them with like hit the yeah. audience like, like, at, like, like at too high a level. Yeah, you're and right. I think we didn't that, draw them, draw, gain their trust. Yeah, and I think that with that show, that one of those, one of the best notes was like, whoa, whoa, whoa like, start low, start small, yeah. and draw us in, make yeah. us want to come to you. And where are we? Like, because the initial beginning was just me enjoying lots of actors running. <laughs> but but it didn't help establish where we were for the audience. And whereas then we, when we changed it. It was so clear yeah. where we were. And I feel like that happens with our work a lot because I feel like we – because that's that's how we had it in the when we first staged it and mm. it, it was at that fountain and then we left it because we were like, oh, no, this it's is boring. It's too still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's too still. And then we came back to it and I feel like we did – we did the same. We've done the same with Little Bitch as we've been developing that. Yeah, we, true. We had such a beautiful work, and then we took it right away. <laughs> we did a reading recently, yeah. and we were like, "Oh God, where is this? Let's go back." Yeah, I but I think, it, but I think, there's a that, lot about your instinct. Yeah, but I also think that that work needs to be done. That kind of like let's expand to the biggest perimeter that we can think of. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We got there. Now let's distill and bring it back because. Yeah. Those first impulses are like belong True. to the seed of the yeah. idea, mm. um, but I think that because then we had the, that big perimeter, now we can pick and choose from the space that we created yeah. within that. Whereas, so much easier to bring it back. Yeah, and, I, and, and that's why development's so important. Like you've yeah. got to have that time to just be like, where, how far can we reach with this? Cool. Yeah. Now look at all of this content and all of this space that we've created that we can pick and choose from and compact and distill back into yeah. the thing that we want to make. Great. Um, should we talk about the great for a yes, moment? Or? let's talk about the great. Yeah, let's. Which is what, what great. I didn't realise the writer's a playwright from Australia. Australia. Yeah. yeah. And, and He wrote was, The Favourite. Yeah, he wrote The Favourite and he wrote Rage, Rage and Placid Lake, which is that Ben Lee and Rose Byrne movie that came out in the 90s. Oh my god, it did, and I've never seen it. Was it? It's really good. Yeah, I remember watching it? it as like, oh, I watched it as a teenager and fucking loved it because it was like alternative teen oh, stuff. emo. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I it was interesting, like because there's a review of the great in the Saturday paper, which I got Luca's subscription to for Christmas. Did you get him a paper subscription? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's also hard to read online. Yeah, it's really hard. And but also, the Saturday paper is so left wing. I know, <laughs> like, it's great. It's, I love it. Yeah. And like it's, you know, proper long form journalism and therefore you come away from article knowing yeah, more. Well, and well, it's it's really well researched. Yeah. But and affirmed. Yeah, but it is very critical of definitely the ScoMo government and yeah constantly but but like therefore but at the same time like he deserves the criticism in my opinion and it's good to be informed in the criticism as opposed to just like having a feeling that it's bad yeah but it's very left-wing anyway but yeah there was an article about the writer whose name is tony mcnamara yeah um and he based in the u.s now i actually have no idea maybe in the uk but he well, was... Yeah, it must be in the UK because the favourite is the UK. And, yeah. yeah. He was a... Um, like he, he, he sucked at English and he became, like, he did commerce and then was one day, like, like he was into theatre and, like, go to theatre, but he was one day, like, if I wrote a play that, like, went well, I can get 10% of the box office and not even have to go to opening <laughs> night. And then just, like, wrote a play and it went well. And then that, the and time, that was the know? play of that there was like the play script of Rage of Placid Lake or I think it was called like Cafe Latte Kid or something like that. And then a terrible name. Yeah, terrible name. <laughs> and then um, from there, like wrote The Great as a play and SCC put it on. And then oh. wrote the favorite. Yeah. What year was this? Do you know? Mm, I can't remember. No idea. I'm not going to say just in case I get it wrong. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it. But um. That's interesting. So he's like, not trained at all. No, he just was like, uh, but because also I think it's just like I don't care about the game, so I'm just gonna like do do it because I don't. Yeah, even and break the rules because he breaks the rules all the time. Totally, why it's so brilliant? Mm-hmm. Because it, I just think it works so well. Like the favorite and the great, they're they're set like centuries ago, and to but to use contemporary language to as the dialogue within those stories mm. works so beautifully like and i feel like i want him to adapt to shakespeare yeah oh my god that would be amazing because because yeah. also he he writes about these incredibly privileged aristocratic like um royalty yes and they're behaving like you would expect completely entitled privileged people to behave yeah but but we've only seen representations of those people as incredibly refined and you know polite and cultured but of of course i'm not like that and i love how in the great there's like they smash the glasses and they're playing down ball against the wall and it within like the palace and all of the male behavior is ridiculous and and yeah it, it just it it breaks through all of the kind of pedestooling that yeah. I've seen uh, m- manifest on so many depictions of yeah. royalty. Yeah. Whereas it's kind of like, well, they were royalty, so they must have been like this. Whereas actually, it's like, no, they're probably assholes who they were, everyone and loved them. Filthy and uh, you know, like those all those those scenes in the Great. Uh, so if, if people haven't watched it, it's on stand. It's called the Great, and it's about Catherine the Great. Well, it essentially follows Catherine's story. But it's it's what is it called the great uh, a sometimes true story or something sometimes like that sometimes true story yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and like the just that there's those parties that they have that are just 
so debaucherous. Yeah. And you can read about the debauchery, but you see it in here. Like they're vomiting. You yeah, know, they're and shooting they're just, bears. They're, they're they, they put, bears. There's a scene where they have a raccoon and a and a Jack Russell and, a, oh and God, an empty log. I couldn't log, watch it. I had to hide my eyes. And they let the raccoon go inside and then they let the Jack Russell out of the raccoon and then the Jack Russell emerges covered in blood. And just, just there's moments like that that you're like, you read about – because I remember reading about how some Russian oligarch used to split open the stomachs of dogs and put their feet in them to keep them warm. And this is like They're barbaric like behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. And like – things that they – like the highest of the high in their their country and they have all the money but they behave the most disgustingly yeah well it's because there's no sense of consequence Consequence. it's like i can do what the fuck i want Mm. all the time Mm. and whatever like the limit is my imagination so if you've got a good imagination then you can be incredibly cruel and you can be but i think that's the like as I can't say too much because you haven't watched it all, but <laughs> I think it, it's worthy of the amount of episodes there are because we see we start to see the result of the understanding of consequence mm. for Peter, mm. which is great because otherwise that character could just go on and on and you'd just be like, oh. Yeah. 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 Okay. You're just a sociopath. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) It's weird seeing because also how brilliant is he? And I just also love that actor. Yeah, Nicholas Holt. Did you ever watch Skins? I loved Skins. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting seeing him play this character because I feel like the character of Tony in Skins is so similar. Yeah. It's like this yeah. this person that has complete control, who's like having sex with his best friend's girlfriend, he's an asshole. yeah, asshole, like Disgusting. just completely manipulative, and just thinks that he's the best, and yeah. he'll always come away with a win. Yeah, like it's such an but interesting. But that will change. Yes, yeah. Well, and it does change in Skins too, which is like yeah, which I is know. also well, horrifically. Yeah. In skins. I almost started rewatching it again the other day, but I literally I remembered that what happens to him. And a couple of the other characters, and I was like, I can't do it again. I can't. I was broken <laughs> the first time I watched that. I cried for days. Oh, really? Oh my god. I also it was because it was the year the year after I moved back from Mexico, and Mick was still in the UK, and we we were not getting anywhere with our uh, visa application and so there was just this never-ending like I'm never gonna see the love of my life ever again yeah I can't be with you (laughs) it was a nightmare how Um, good is that episode where they all sing "Ooh, baby baby like it's so weird I I think that's why I love skin I actually think that I recently we re-watched the first um season of scrubs Mm. and it's crazy like everyone's re-watching that at the moment oh really yeah i i only watched it recently because i found i was at my parents house and they they have the the dvds of the first season i was like oh my god old school (laughs) i know um and they like there's so many like really absurdist cutaways that are just like he's just like walking along the corridor and suddenly he'll say one thing and everything will get completely surreal yeah and it's like i haven't really seen television like that since except for family guy that do those cutaways really quickly and fleabag a little bit yeah yeah but it was so early and yeah yeah it worked so well and and it it's such a beautiful like exploration of actually how the human human consciousness and human perception works it's like and we were talking about this 
yesterday when when we were talking about that draft, the draft of the radio play that you've written and how human the human mind just goes from one thing to the next and it, it doesn't it doesn't stay in a genre. No, exactly, and it doesn't stay in reality. No, like, there's so it much shifts. kind of what if this happened or like I said that, but like did they think I meant this or because yeah. even when you're just walking along, like the breadth of your own inner life far exceeds that which can be depicted just you know yeah. in, a, in a kind of ER style realism drama. And if we did see what was in our heads. You'd be like, what? Yeah. Where yeah. are we? We're, exactly. And I think that especially because Scrubs are set in a hospital, which is like so yeah. to do with like I, there's, there's this kind of mystical world which is underneath the skin of the human body. There's like it, it's gruesome and it's and it's a mystery to most of us because uh-huh. we don't know how the fuck organs work, but they seem know. to be working. And, yeah. and also like because we're breathing and 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 our brain is and our heart's popping blood and our brain's working all of these automatic things are going on yeah and therefore there's this like kind of surreal element just within the fact that these people are medical practitioners and then the, the way in which that often ignites these dreamlike states as well I don't know I, I I was just really impressed and I forgot how like form breaking scrubs is yeah <laughs> you know I never watched it Oh really? I, I, I oh, here I like, am banging on about Scrubs. No, I love that you are because I oh, I've he- heard so many people of late watching Scrubs, and like someone told me recently that they watched all of Scrubs in like forty eight hours or oh, something God. like that. Oh God. I don't think they stopped. I think that's a serious problem. But uh, <laughs> it's yeah, I must I must try and. It's oh, no, not I'm great. Never, I'm actually not going to watch it. Yeah, it's not great in terms of the depiction and representation of women. Like, it's pretty disappointing. Well, it's, when is it? It's like mid 2000s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's kind of still doing that whole thing of like, girls are either sexy yeah. or annoying, and yeah. that's all they can be. And it's still from a male point of view. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. But, you know, the form is great. Yeah. Can <laughs> I just say that I have, for the I'm, I'm watching Fleabag for the first time. Oh, wow. I've, I've not watched it and I've just – so I think I just finished the first series because it's on the ABC at the moment. Yeah. And so – and I fell apart, like the fucking last episode. But it's – I just think it's brilliant. It is brilliant. She's brilliant. She's mm-hmm. a brilliant actor and a brilliant writer mm-hmm. and it's a typically English because it's so understated but – the fact that they are willing to shift out of, you know, to, to manipulate the, the realm of our, uh, our expectations as mm-hmm. a TV, you know, 25-minute show, it's so clever and yeah. it's so complex. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm so excited for the second season and I'm, I know that there's no third season and I'm already sad. <laughs> <laughs> the second season is fucked it's so good and I think that the way in which she involves you as the viewer is actually what we talk about a lot because we're as a viewer you're made complicit because you're watching and she makes you because she looks at you and is like you're watching this and I'm doing this and therefore it's okay I guess to you it's okay and therefore whatever I do it's fine and it's been okay from the beginning. Everything was okay. She's so lovable. And then you find out and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. But I thought you were my friend. Yeah. Like, she literally feels like a friend. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go out drinking with her. Yeah. It's just, oh, the only, my only 
kind of criticism is that like I remember at some points in the first season, the second season isn't the same. The second season's like I think one of the best TV things that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. But the first season I I did, I was just like I just wanted to like shake her by the shoulders and be like, get it together, girl. Like, yeah, come I know, on, she's like pretty useless. You and, and I get that you're traumatized, and I get that there are you know psychological barriers to you forming any sort of stability in your life, but. Every episode is that, and you want to see some sort of growth, and she doesn't give you that, and it's yeah. just a bit like. Argh. But yeah. having said that, like the first I'm hoping episode, that, that that like in time wise, that that's a small amount, short amount of time. Yeah, she's so yeah me too. Me too. Yeah. Um, and the first episode of the second season is like it almost acknowledges it, calls it out for what it is, apologizes. And moves on. Like so it's because I think so that was good. What screened last night, so I'm going to oh, watch it tomorrow. Yes. You're going to so love excited. it so much. I, I as soon as I started watching Olivia first... Coleman in it because I yeah. love Olivia yeah, Coleman. I normally I love her in whatever she plays, but she's such a fucking asshole. Oh my god! Yeah, I love it. Have you seen Peep Show? Yeah, I love Peep yeah. Show. It's so good, and she's yeah. so good in it. Especially Fantastic. did you did you watch season nine, like the last, later season that came out that like was way later, like they released it like years later. Uh, uh, no, no, I don't think I have. She's, is this after she's, you know, she's got a career? Because that was like the first part of the first part Yeah, of although she, because she was in Broadchurch, but. But, but Broadchurch was after Peep Show. Yeah, but season nine, she's still playing the same character. She's still playing the, the kind of, what's her name? The um, terrible wife. Yeah. The, the disappointed wife. Um, Sophie, Sophie. Yeah. Um And... She is like always drunk, like the whole time, like because she's like having a shit time and like trying to make things work with this other man and it's not working out. So she was like rocking up drunk, and there's this moment where he's taken the kid to um like a like an indoor day center that has like a ball pit, oh, and she's drunk and he's like trying to like seduce this other woman, and so. He ends up burying her in the ball pit because she's like passed out. It's, oh my it's God, very amazing. good. It's very like situational comedy at its best. People, so I think, is the best comedy that's ever been written. So. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so just the the fisheye lens is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you listened to the episode of David Tennant does a podcast with Olivia Coleman? Yeah. So good. Yeah. It's she fantastic. Is an absolute delight. She's mm. so cute. Yeah. And also, and she, so it's interesting that, like, because I think that he interviewed, I think I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, it was right after all the favourite stuff. And, yeah. and so she's kind of talking about the fact that she's now famous, like, in yeah. this way. That she and she can't deal with it. She fucking hates it. And is, is she, and she was trolled and she felt devastated by it. And, and the way she deals with social media and she's, she's just like this little – Sweet little naive person. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. But I also think that she like is very self-knowing and like has a sort certain like English people are ridiculously proper and therefore she yeah. like just say fuck and stuff all the time and it's just yeah. the best. Yeah, but and she's she's got a dog on her lap all the time as yeah. well, which I love. <laughs> yeah, she's. Yeah. I love that. I wish he'd 
get back on the David Tennant does a podcast series. Yeah, it's that interesting that he hasn't. Like, come on, what are you doing, yeah, David? It's been in isolation. Sure, you haven't been shooting a film. Yeah, like, exactly. make a podcast. We got <laughs> one man. Yeah, if, if we can do it, you can do it, David. This is like the longest podcast in the world. <laughs> all of the material we've spoken about. Tonight. No, it's, it's all quality content. Two bottles of champagne. <laughs> we should do that one night when we're allowed. No, well, we are allowed now. Back in the same room, just keep it keep it recording. And just drink all the champagne. Yeah, absolutely. See what comes out of our mouths. Um, speaking of drinking all the champagne, did you get – I'm going to stop recording now. I think we're done. Are we done? I think we're done. Okay, yeah, bye, everyone. Done. Thanks for listening. Bye. See you later.